turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 4. We'll look at verses 12 to 17 today. Matthew 4, 12 to 17. We live in the day of uh, GPS navigation. I have one in my car, and I love it. Type in an address. It doesn't matter whether you've ever been there before, and it will take you there. This pleasant voice, which we call Jill in my car, will um, tell you every turn to make and, and um, rail on you if you miss a turn, actually. But sometimes I miss having a map. A map doesn't begin to do what the GPS does, but it does do a, one important thing that the GPS doesn't do very well. A map, a map lets you see the big picture of where you are in relationship to everything else. And just seeing where you're headed, seeing where you are, that to me makes the trip more enjoyable than just driving down some unnamed highway waiting for the voice to tell you to turn again. I bring all that up because Matthew is a great gospel account for us to study. For Matthew gives us verbal maps. He lets us know where we're going. He organizes the material in such a way that we can kind of see the big picture. So let me describe where we are right now in Matthew's um, map of this gospel. He begins by introducing Jesus. So we have the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the visit of the Magi, the unexpected trip to Egypt and back, all about Jesus uh, as an infant. And then Matthew tells, begins to tell of his preparation for ministry, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, an overview of his public ministry, the calling of the disciples and such. And that's where we are today. And then Matthew's going to go on and he's going to talk about Jesus' teaching. We're going to have the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of teaching. He's going to talk about Jesus' miracles. We're going to have a couple of chapters, eight and nine, about Jesus' miracles. So Matthew makes this all very logical. You can kind of see where we are as opposed to just an endless chronology of events. So this morning, we're told, uh, as we look at the overview of Jesus' ministry, we're told today that the setting of Jesus' ministry uh, was to be Galilee. And we're told how Jesus got to Galilee. That's what's in our text today. Let me just read the text. Verse 12, Matthew 4, 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put, to prison, put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, and went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, quote, land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and in the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned, end quote. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, there are two truths that I want us to see in this brief account. There's a major truth and, and, and then kind of a minor truth. We'll do the major truth first. And the way I would put it is this. I, I thought about all kinds of ways to put this, but I came back to this. God cares about the nobodies. God cares about the nobodies. You have been around a while and say, boy, that sounds familiar to me. Yes, it is. I've used that same main point in, in a couple of other sermons. And, and without excuse, for this truth is crucial to our understanding of God's saving plan. That God cares about the nobodies. As a boy growing up in Sunday school, I heard early and often about Galilee, for that's where Jesus lived. 
it sounded like a wonderful place to me, probably because I heard that there was a nice lake and fishes there. So I grew up with an idyllic view of the area of Galilee, a happy, peaceful, picturesque countryside. Now, that's not all wrong. Galilee was mostly a rural place with lots of villages. It, it, it was a lot like Watson County, uh, about the same size as, of our as our county, if you lop off that part over on the other side of the mountain, about the same number of people as our county, although dispersed more in small villages. And it was, too, was a fertile place to farm. I suspect the people who lived there loved it. But the rest of Israel did not have an idyllic view of Galilee at all. Oh, they may have liked the countryside, but they despised the Galileans. They mocked how they talked about the Galilee. They considered them ignorant and uneducated. But worst of all, they thought the Gal of the Galileans as impure Jews. You see, Galilee was the northernmost part of, uh, of, of, of the country, the area of Israel. That means that as enemies swept down from the north over the centuries to attack Israel, the first thing they would do is overrun the area of Galilee. And, and because the population was in constant contact with the Gentiles who surrounded them just about on all sides and who, who, who came through and conquered them and then left and came back and over the years. Because of that, the population was in constant contact with the Gentiles and, and Galilee tended to be where people were most corrupted in their religion. So the area was actually called Galilee of the Gentiles. You have to kind of say it with a little sneer you want to get this picture up. People assumed, people down in Jerusalem, people assumed that there wasn't a prayer of a chance for the people in Galilee. What a hopeless bunch. Jerusalem and Judah, they might again rise to greatness, but not those poor nobodies in Galilee, but then again, who cared about them anyway? Well, God cared about you. Indeed, he still cares about the nobodies of the world. And so Jesus' earthly ministry was centered in Galilee. Jesus did not come preaching and teaching in Jerusalem. Late, late in his ministry, he did that. His target group was not the chief priests and the elders of Israel, the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. No. He did not seek out the prosperous elites of, of, of Judea. Instead, he came to those who were poor and hopeless and downtrodden, people in the most distressing situations. And it was not just some accident that he ended up there. Isaiah had prophesied that place by name 700 years earlier. We read it. Matthew makes sure we know that prophecy. That's kind of the, the, the main part of this text. And, and we read it in Matthew 15 and 16. Matthew quotes the prediction from Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulun and, and the land of Naphtali, those are the two tribes of Israel when the land was divided up, that's, they were up there. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death. 
It was on doorkeepers. The despised, the nobodies of Israel, that the light of the world first shone. This was God's plan even before Jesus was born, for God cared about the nobodies. And so as it worked out, nearly all of Jesus' ministry was among the people in this northernmost part of Israel. All of his disciples, except Judas Iscariot, I believe, were Galileans, despised Galileans. And even when Jesus went outside that geographical area, his ministry was still to the nobodies, the sick, the broken, the demon-possessed, the outcasts, the public sinners, those living in darkness. Because Jesus cared about the nobodies. But not only did God remember the despised and rejected when Jesus came into the world, it continued throughout the New Testament era as the gospel advanced to the world. So, for example, while the holy city of Jerusalem rejected Jesus, Ephesus, that wicked city that was the center of worship of the goddess Diana, that became a great center of Christian evangelism. And Corinth, that port city that was just full of every kind of godlessness, came to have a powerful church there. But Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, no, not so much. Athens, the center of Greek culture and learning, no, not so much. And folks, it's still happening today. For all the power and prestige the church has amassed over the centuries, you know, the greatest growth still takes place among the nobodies of the world. Common people, poor people, hurting people. And for all the smugness of Christians with white European roots, people like me and you, with our great theological heritage and the Protestant Reformation, most of the growth in the church these days is not primarily white, but black and brown not primarily North American, but Latin and African and Asian. And in spite of all the resources that, 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 we, that we sit on here in America, nowadays less than half of the missionaries going out with the gospel are from the United States. Only 40-some percent. You see, God routinely grows his kingdom among the nobodies of the world. This should bring hope to you. If you're burdened with your lowly status in the world, if you've been made well aware that you have little claim on anything, if you've been looked down on so often that you believe it yourself, if you're crumbling under the weight of that burden, if you feel despised and rejected, outcast and lonely, or if you've become convinced that because of your miserable failures, God himself is now against you, well, you need to hear the good news of this text. When God announced the coming of his son Jesus to bring salvation to the world, he specifically promised him to the Galileans, the nobodies of Israel, who, who without any hopes, other hopes, would receive Jesus. You see, Jesus has a record 
of picking people out of the dumpster of life and making them fit with the premises of his people as his servants of Christ. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, things that are nothing, to nullify the things that are something so that no one may boast before him. Or as Jesus himself will say it in the next chapter, blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. I cannot overstate the straight truth. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, those who think they're righteous. Jesus came to save sinners. The nobodies. Who would cast themselves on the mercy of Jesus. God cares about the nobodies. He cares about you. Then this same text suggests another quite different truth. Actually, I think what we have in this text is we have the major thrust of the text, which is this first point that we just talked about, bolstered by the quote from Isaiah 9. And then we have kind of a sidebar truth that's not really the thrust of the text, but we learn from what happens in the text things that apply to us, even though that's not the primary thing the text is, is trying to say to us. The second truth is this. God uses trouble to direct our steps. God uses trouble to direct our steps. There are many fanciful ways around in the church concerning how God directs us, how he leads us. Some people speak of experiencing the supernatural, visions and dreams and voices and miraculous circumstances. I'd be careful about those things. You're really out on the fringe of orthodoxy when you start getting into that. More common are people speaking of their feelings. God just gave me a sense of urgency. God made me feel compelled to do this. God spoke to me in the quietness of my heart and told me this is what I ought to do and gave me peace about this. Of course, the assumption is that God caused all these strong feelings and that I have accurately interpreted them to be God telling me something, though there's some, some uh, problems. But nonetheless, that's how people often discern how God's leading them. But many Christians miss one of the primary ways that God leads us, and that's what this text kind of assumes. God uses trouble to direct our steps. Maybe we don't talk about that because we don't want trouble. You know, the old thing about don't pray for patience because tribulation works patience. We don't want that. <laughs> God uses trouble to direct our steps. Think about Jesus' situation here. As we've already said, it was, it was God's declared will that Jesus' ministry be centered in Galilee. We're not told when exactly Jesus became conscious of that, whether he knew that all along or that's something we kind of learned. It's, it's somewhat of a mystery to us how Jesus, who's fully man, who, who doesn't go around as a, even a child or a young man, omniscient, knowing every, everything that there is, nonetheless is the God-man, and is learning and growing while at the same time he's God. That's a big mystery to us that we can't explain. But, but, so we don't know exactly 
how Jesus was thinking about the Galilee thing. We do know that Galilee was not where Jesus found himself when we come to this text. He had been baptized by John in the wilderness of Judah. The wilderness of Judah was an area east of the Jordan Valley, north of Jericho, quite near Jerusalem. Afterwards, he had gone out in the wilderness to baptize like John did, presumably in a nearby area. In other words, Jesus had already begun some ministry down in Judah, near Jerusalem, about 70 miles south of Galilee. So how did Jesus get to Galilee? How did the Father direct his steps to put him back there? Well, God used trouble to direct his steps. We read in verse 12, where it literally says, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. Key words, withdrew. That's a natural response that we have to pain or trouble. We back off. We, 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 we pull back. We, we withdraw. So when the pain and threat posed by John's arrest hit Jesus, he withdrew. In fact, there are at least six times in Matthew where it says that Jesus withdrew, and every one of those six times, uh, 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 it's in the, in the face of official hostility toward him. In other words, God apparently used that trouble, John's imprisonment, and the threat of the same upon Jesus to send Jesus back to Galilee. Oh, but that's not all. When Jesus did return, he naturally went to the town of Nazareth. That's where, that was his boyhood home. That's where he grew up. Now, why didn't he just stay there? Nazareth was, Nazareth was a town in Galilee. How did God direct him to leave Nazareth and go up to Capernaum, which really became the center of his ministry? Well, our text doesn't say. But the Bible doesn't leave us without a clue either. Do you remember what happened when Jesus went home to Nazareth? We, we, we actually read about it in Luke, I think, chapter 4. Jesus went back to Nazareth, and he went to the first time into the, 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 his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And, and, and when the time came, he stood up, I guess, volunteering to read. And they handed him a scroll of Isaiah's prophecy, and he unrolled it, and he found this very special, powerful, messianic text what we call Isaiah 61, and he began to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he finished, he rolled the scroll up and handed it back and sat down. While every eye was fixed on him, as if they were waiting for some explanation why he read that passage. Finally, Jesus spoke. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he said, this prophecy of the Messiah is talking about me. Today, here, I'm the one. 
what a wonderful announcement. Would you have loved to be there to hear that? Here the Messiah's appeared, and he's sitting here. He's just read this thing and made it his own. So how did the hometown crowd receive his divinity? They rose up like a mob, and they ran him out of town and tried to throw him off a cliff. Could that be why Jesus left Nazareth and went to Capernaum? He withdrew. Maybe another example of God using trouble to direct our steps. And the Bible's full of God using trouble to direct his people's steps. In Genesis 46, God used the trouble of a terrible famine to cause Jacob, who never wanted to leave the land of promise, called Jacob to pack up and go to Egypt, where he found food for his family to live and found his son, Joseph, that he thought was dead. In Deuteronomy, God promised to use trouble against Israel if they sinned against him, to turn them back to himself. So I will hunt you down. I will hunt you down. I will, I will bring nothing but trouble on you until you repent. In Ruth chapter 1, God used the trouble of a famine again to move Naomi and Ruth uh, uh, back to Israel, to the land of Judah. In Acts 8, God used the trouble of persecution to scatter the early church. They were all congregated in Jerusalem and, and trouble came, and they all ran and got dispersed throughout the whole Roman Empire, taking the gospel with them. God used trouble to disperse them. Throughout the book, of, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul tells us that he planned to preach in Troas, but God used the trouble of, of Titus's delay, and, and, and he just couldn't do it, and he, and he moved on to Macedonia, and therefore onto the continent of Europe, and and, 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 and the evangelization of Europe. The next verse after Paul talks about that, he says, I thank God who always leads us in triumphal procession, triumphal procession, which we get led though because of trouble pushing us. Throughout the book of Acts, God used the trouble of arrest and imprisonment to send his apostles to speak the truth of the gospel to kings and, and emperors and, and governors. God routinely uses trouble to direct the steps of his people. So why did he get so, so uptight, so uptight when trouble seemed so bad? Do you not know that God is in control of even that? Do you not know that trouble can never separate us from the love of Christ? Do you not know that when God provides a way of escape, he's making things better for us? Even though we maybe having to withdraw from where we thought we ought to be? Do you not know that, what God, that God's plans are much greater than just making you comfortable where you are? Oh, do not despise God's hand of providence just because you don't understand it. Would God use trouble to direct Jesus' steps? We can expect that he will do the same with us. This is such a simple sermon. Two simple points. Small text. In fact, I almost have slipped over this text. Tried to take a bigger bite and some more grandiose point. But if life is going to, and if, and if life is going pretty well for you these days and you feel good about yourself, you, you, you may think, why do I spend time with me? 
The problem, however, is that often life is not going well. We feel beaten down. We feel defeated. In such days of defeat and self-doubt, we quickly conclude that nobody cares for us. And so when trouble piles into already demoralized uh, hearts, it only seems to be more evidence that God himself has abandoned us. But you see, all that's not true. In the days of defeat and self-doubt, we need to hear again, God cares about nobody. When you're so defeated, you're so downcast, you can hardly lift your eyes, staring at the ground, God cares about the nobody. And when trouble piles on, we need to remember, God is not destroying us. God uses trouble to direct our steps to do his perfect will. This may be simple, but it's not a meaningless text at all. This is a text which should lift us out of the pit of despair, restore our hope, make us bold. May it be so for you as it has been for me.